Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful Sabbath day, for the sunshine, and this opportunity for us to all be together. We pray now that as we open your word, that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us, to guide us, that we would hear what the word has to say to us today, and Father, that we might also put that into practice. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Uh, let's start by turning to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24, and we'll read together from verse 1 to 8. So uh, starting with Kiran, if you could, let's take two verses each, Kiran and then Autumn, um, Matthew 24, 1 to 8. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say unto you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. All right, let's pause there. Um, now, for those of you who looked at the lesson study guide, you'll know this is one of the chapters that we were talking about, but it's not the only one. And I don't know if any of you had this experience. You know, you're going through the study guide, and you're like, how do these thoughts connect? What does chapter 23 have to do with chapter 24? Was Matthew just kind of rambling on? And, and why did the, the study guide put these together? Like, what, what do you see? Did you see or do you see any connections in, in looking at the study now? Like, not just this chapter. Like, how does this relate to the other stuff? Actually, that's exactly what I thought when the lesson said, read chapter 23 and then 24. And I was like, 23 seems to have nothing to do with 24. And, you know, we always jump to 24 and we look at the end time events and the signs of Jesus' coming and the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, but then when I was reading through chapter 23, it's just like, woe be Pharisee this and woe be Pharisee that. And it's just like all of these just kind of really strong rebukes that Jesus is giving to the Pharisees in all of chapter 23. Ironically, this is the last address Jesus has to the Pharisees before his crucifixion, um, or I should say before they plot to kill him. So this is kind of like his final word to the Pharisees. And when you get through the whole of the chapter 23, it just sounds very, very um, dismal until you get to verse 37. And when you get to verse 37, it's almost so Jesus. So in 23 verse 37? Oh, yeah, sorry, 23 verse okay. 37. Jesus' tone almost makes a 180. You know, he's been saying all these woes to the Pharisees, but then all of a sudden you hear Jesus in almost this, this tone of lament that he's weeping over Jerusalem. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And and, and then he says, you won't um, see me again until you say, blessed he that comes in the name of the Lord. And I thought it's interesting because this, this conversation of Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and then he says, your house is left to you desolate. And immediately I thought back to two chapters previously in Matthew 21, 
And in Matthew 21, Jesus uses a very similar phrase. Um, he's just been cleansing the temple. And in 21, uh, 13, he says, he, he's just been, you know, driving out the money changers out of the temple. And he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Mm -hmm. In chapter 21, Jesus refers to it as my house, his abode, which was the temple. But then in chapter 23, he says, this is your house. My presence doesn't belong here anymore. You have rejected me. And because you have rejected me, this is no longer my house. This is your house. Mm -hmm. And it's left desolate. And then you can just imagine for, you know, these disciples, they're listening like, okay, well, what does this mean? And they don't really get, get it. And they walk out of the temple. Jesus walks out. And I think that's very interesting. When you see the language that's here, Jesus walks out of the temple. And I think that's not only literally Jesus walks out, but in a very figurative sense, he's leaving them to their own devices. He said, you rejected me. I'm walking out of the temple. And when he walks out of this temple, uh, the, the disciples in Mark we're, actually... We're in 24 verse 1 now, right? Yeah, that's okay. right, 24 1. And the, Mark explains it a little bit more, but the disciples are, look, look at the beautiful buildings and the stones. And, mm. and Jesus is like, did you not get it? This is no longer my house. The disciples put so much focus on the temple. That was their identity. That was who they were as a Jewish nation. Everything was the temple. And so when they hear about the temple destruction, that must be the end of the world for them. And so they immediately are like, whoa, if the temple's gone, that means we're gone too. And so then they start asking Jesus these questions like, okay, so when is this going to happen? So then Jesus starts mixing these two things together, the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world, just to help it to make it a little bit less frightening, I guess, for the disciples to hear it. But their whole identity is the temple, the temple. And so with the temple gone, now they don't know what to think. All right, so, so what you're saying is, uh, and then Amy, that... 24 starts, 24 verse 1, it starts with Jesus leaving the temple, and this is connected to the conversation he's been having with the Pharisees, right? That, that, that there's some, but they're missing something in what Jesus has been trying to say. Totally. Okay. Amy? Yeah, and that's exactly what I wanted to jump off of. I think in looking at what, what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 23 is in 24, they're focused on, oh, look how beautiful the temple is. We're leaving it. They're not focusing on what the purpose of the temple was. They're focusing on mm -hmm. the external beauty of what the second temple was. And really, that's exactly what Jesus is blasting all the way through chapter 23 and saying, mm -hmm. this is the problem that the Pharisees have. Specifically, you look at verse 5 and he says, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make 23 their verse 5. 23 verse 5, yes. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge in their borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts and the, and the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth Father, for one is your Father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Mm -hmm. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Mm -hmm. And so that's just kind of even the introduction to then when Jesus goes and he's blasting the Pharisees seven times, he gives them mm -hmm. seven different woes 
And when you really look at each and every single one of them, he's saying, you're doing this action, but it's not conforming with what should really be on the inside. You're going and you're making a proselyte. You're going and you're doing evangelism. Mm -hmm. You're converting someone to Judaism, but just to be a rule keeper without the heart of the religion, mm -hmm. just like you. You are like a tomb. You're whitewashed. You're beautiful on the outside, but inside you're decayed and you're dead. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a dirty cup. You wash the outside of the cup, but inside it's still nasty. It's got the gunk from your breakfast left over. Right. You need to wash the inside of the cup. You know, here the Pharisees are focused on the externals rather than taking on the internal. And this is even that looks like the, the condition that the disciples themselves are getting. And that's what Jesus is trying to warn them away from and us away from too. Mm -hmm. Kieran, it looks like you have something to say. Yeah. So, I mean, in the first words, uh, I agree with Amy. And, um, so Jesus okay. spoke in the verse 23, chapter 23, verse 1. Uh, two, actually, verse one. one and two, actually. Two. These scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and they do not do. Hmm. So he's attacking the hypocrisy. Now, are we in such danger today? <clears throat> I mean, like, you know, hypocrisy, we all consider that we are not hypocrites. We're all like genuine Christians. That's what we think. But what happens if someone is a hypocrite? What is the danger of being a hypocrite? Now, I ran a half marathon first time like four years ago, and I was running with my running buddy, and we practiced, and I was like really nervous. The last quarter mile, I'm dying. Like, the last quarter? The last <laughs> quarter mile, I'm dying, actually. And then people were cheering. It was in the downtown Detroit. They were all cheating? the building. Cheering, cheering, right? Oh, cheering, cheering. Okay. So, and then I saw two people that I knew. They looked at me suffering, and one of them laughed at me. And that person had, you know, really athletic clothes like this, uh, you know, really fancy shoes and then jacket. Seemed like a pro runner. And I thought, this pro runner is looking at me and laughing. What's the point of me running? And I was just dying there. And then when I was like, you know, stopping, my few friends, couple of them on the other side, they had these cowbells, ridiculous cowbells. They're ringing the cowbells. They're shouting, run, Koya, run, run, run. They were screaming. And I had no idea where that energy came from. I just got this shot of energy, and then I kept running to the finish line, and I ran. You see, those people ran a 5K or a 10K, something. So they know the pain of last quarter mile. But later I'm talking to this other person who laughed at me. That person never ran a race. Like the, the race that that person ran was a 400 mile race in a high school. That's nothing compared to 13 miles. You see, when we experience sin, and when we go back to Jesus and then ask for that forgiveness, and then when we go back to him for healing, we know the pain of a fellow sinner. If we are hypocrites, we actually destroy them. That's mm. the problem. So that's why Jesus is so angry. You, first of all, you don't go to heaven. You don't accept my grace. But you're destroying all these people that are coming. You're putting too much load on them. You see, I think we are so much in that danger today, too. Mm. So, so what you're saying is not only do the scribes and Pharisees have a problem themselves, but their problem actually becomes a problem for other people, right? So, so it, it hinders the faith of those who are trying to run the race, and it actually like, um, discourages them, right? Okay, so going back to, to this connection, it seems the connection between 23 and 24 is this focus on externals 
And the scribes and Pharisees had a focus on the wrong thing, on externals. And the disciples seemed to be inheriting that same problem in chapter 24. Okay, uh, let's, let's keep reading. Verse, we stopped at verse 8. Let's read, let's read a huge chunk here. Uh, I know most of us have read Matthew 24 before, but it never hurts to read the Bible. Amen. Amen. <laughs> it was like... Oh, we're going to read the whole chapter. Yes. Let's start from verse 9. Uh, do three verses each until I say we quit for now. Uh, I'll start because I want to read too. Verse 9. Jesus says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. 13. 12. And because the lawless, lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Verse 26, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as, much as, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For whoever the uh, carcass, wherever the carcass is, is the, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give the light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one of the heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All right, let's pause there. So we start with, they, they, there's a... Um, Perception problem, and Autumn, you, you brought this out when you made your first statements that, that uh, Jesus starts mingling uh, this conversation about what will happen to the end of, at the end of the world with what will happen at the end of Jerusalem's opulence, I guess, you know, its brilliance. 
Um, and so he goes into this thing. Now, I, I want us to discuss, if we could, because I think this is relevant to my personal life and hopefully to somebody else's, what we just read. He's talking about the end of the time when Jesus comes back. And he says, verse 34, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Uh, Paul is no longer alive. Actually, Paul wasn't even a disciple back then, right? Um, Peter died. So it seems like the generation passed and Jesus hasn't come back yet. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> you know, this is, i just say something. This is, this is really interesting because there's a tearing time um, between the time that Jesus ascends and he tells his disciples something very interesting. The disciples at the ascension um, were standing there. Many of them went back to their daily Vocation. uh, vocations. And um, they weren't really about their father's business, but he told them to, to do something. He said, to occupy till I come. Mm -hmm. um, he says, why do you stand here idle? Why do you stand here all the day idle? Um, and so we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it, um, what is it that we need to do in the tearing time? Uh, what, what is it that, that God requires us to do um, while we're waiting? Um, because many times we lose a sense of urgency, but I think that there's really something interesting and very important that he refers to Daniel. Um, well, before before we come to Daniel, because okay. I would like to go there, because okay. that's another big one for me. Um, I want to bring us back to my question <laughs> before you bring yours, right? What do we do with the fact Jesus said, verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away, which means that my, what I'm telling you right now will happen before heaven and earth pass away. Like, this is for sure, for sure, right? Mm -hmm. And yet here we are, and Peter died a long time. It's a long, tarrying time. But what do we do? Did Jesus lie? Was he confused, Amy? So I think the Sabbath school lesson brought this out a little bit, that in the specific way that Jesus is, uses generation here, he's speaking in Greek, but it refers back to the Hebrew. And it talks about generation not in terms of as we think of baby boomers and Gen Xers and millennials, this generation, but <laughs> this type of group of people. And I think even if we go back to chapter 23, we see that what he's talking about, because in verse... Um, in verse 35 and 36, I think will help bring the fullest understanding. So that, chapter 23, verse 35 and 36. Yes. Right. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. So he's talking to the Pharisees again. Whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Hmm. So he's saying that the things that you did to those prophets are going to come upon you people who are like this that I've just been blasting for these, you know, seven woes. We go so, back so you're saying, like in verse 35, uh, the blood of righteous Abel, these scribes and Pharisees are not the ones who slew Abel, but they are the type of person who would slay Abel, right? right? Exactly. And so generation is a type of person. Exactly. Okay. And right. so then when you go back to chapter 24, and your verse in verse 34, assuredly I say to you, this generation will no means pass away till all these things take place. It's that same generation of people mm -hmm. who are slaying righteous Abel, who are slaying um, all of the other prophets. That's going to mm -hmm. keep on going until the very end of the time. Then I have the Andrew Study Bible, and it says that here, um, in regard to this verse, it says, also in Matthew, the expression, this generation is always a negative verdict by Jesus on those who are rejecting him then. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, 
Yeah, that's an excellent point, what she said. I completely agree. And I also want to... You always agree with Amy. She's smart. <laughs> She's smart. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And I also want to stress that, you know, the original question, why Jesus is answering all these things is, when this is the destruction of this temple? So he is not only addressing the destruction of that temple at the time, but he's also talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's mixing both of them together. It's a dual prophecy. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the destruction of Jerusalem temple, 40 years after Jesus' death, mm -hmm. the temple was actually destroyed. And looking at this prophecy, all the Christians actually mm -hmm. figured out that this is the time that we should leave the temple, mm -hmm. the city, and then they ran away and then they were saved. Mm -hmm. So Jesus wasn't actually lying, or he didn't say something that is not true. Mm. But in fact, it is a dual prophecy, and also he's showing that this type of generation will not, you know, mm -hmm. so, so it's, it's both ways. Mm. Okay, and, and, and you're bringing us to what, Julian, what I stopped Julian from, from talking about, like this, this destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, do you want to go there right now? Yeah, I'll we can ahead. look at that um, very... Um, as you can begin to talk about the abomination of desolation, I think it's very... What verse is that? Um, we get to verse 15 through 20. Um, we'll really start talking... Start really picks up with the abomination of desolation in verse 15, and it takes us on into what that means um, through verse 28. Um, we can start there. So, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by, by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place... Let the reader understand. Um, it's very interesting. I think that right after following that, he tells them how to be properly prepared for an event that they would, they would have been familiar with, having been um, students of the word, having known the scriptures. Referring to Daniel was now beginning to take their minds from what their, their little, you know, they were focused on their present situation and their present threat to broadening their horizons and broadening, broadening their, their view of what the bigger threat really was um, and um, how to be properly prepared for them. Not, not just physically prepared, but to be um, properly prepared in heart um, for, for what's to come in the abomination of desolation. Um, because there was not one, we're told in great controversy, that there was not one Christian that died in the destruction of Jerusalem um, so they needed to have, have an understanding of what it was to be properly prepared to know not just the physical outward signs, but the signs that were being revealed um, around them. And more importantly, was their heart really prepared? And, um, you know, if, if we look at, um, I don't know if we can go here now, but if we go down to verse, uh, um, some of the signs about if, if you say that the false Christ being in a, in a secret chamber is that verse uh, 30, 36? 26, 26. thank you. Wow, we have people listening. Verse 26. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, so he says, see, I have told you beforehand, so, so if, he, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And the King James says, if he says he's in the secret chambers, uh, going out there. There's a very interesting statement. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 26, if we can go, go there really quick. Isaiah 26, um, verses 20 and 21. And if somebody wants to read that, when we get whoever gets there. I could read it. Isaiah 26, 20 oh. and 21. Yeah. 
Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself as it were for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his, his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. And you, know, you see the language here that the prophet is saying, come into the chambers and enter in. And Jesus is saying that if they're, if they're saved to you, that I'm in the secret chambers, go not there. But however, um, there's, a, there's a place of protection that we can be in coming and understanding. That's why I believe it's interesting that he says, understand. Um, come and understand where, where Daniel is saying, standing in the holy place. Um, understanding the judgment gives us, I think our understanding as a church and as a, as a people of the judgment gives us a certain surety and security of what's to come um, as it pertains to um, the destruction of the world, the second coming. And um, if I could just read a statement really quick. Okay. Um, this is from Bible Commentaries, or actually Review and Herald, November 19, 1908. It says, when tempted to sin, let us remember that Jesus is pleading for us in the heavenly sanctuary. When we put away our sins and come to him in faith, he takes our names on his lips and presents them to his father, saying, I have graven them upon the palms of my hands. I know them by name, and the command goes forth to the angels to protect them. Then, in the day of fierce trial, he will say, Come, my people, quote um, Isaiah 26, Enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. And then she asks the question, she says, well, what are the chambers in which they are to hide? And then she says, they are the protection of Christ and, and holy angels. The people of God are not at this time all in one place. They are in different companies and in all parts of the earth, and they will be tried singly, not in groups. Everyone must stand the test for himself. That, 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 um, that introduces the dismal aspect that I recall growing up in the church with, is Jesus is coming soon, Whoa. right? And it's, it's, a, it's a scary thing for me, it was a scary thing for me, was a scary thing for me, like as I grew up in the church. Like how do we, um, how do we not be scared of Jesus coming back? Because it seems like uh, there's, a, there's an element of, of terror to it, especially when you start talking about judgment and that kind of thing. Um, I, yeah, how do you not be scared? Yeah. Um, something that's really helped me understand, I think, what the Bible teaches about judgment is actually being involved in the court system itself. And so I work not just in courts, but I also do criminal law. And so in criminal law, there are special provisions where if you're a first-time offender and you're caught with drugs, or if you're a young person who's over 17, but you're under 21, and in some circumstances a little bit older, but we don't have to get into that, there are provisions made for you in the law where if you follow the probation period and you're successful in that probation period, the charges against you are completely dismissed. They're erased from your record. It's as if you had never committed that crime. But in order for you to avail yourself of that opportunity, you have to plead guilty. You can't go to trial and say, oh, I'm not guilty, I'm not guilty. The jury finds you guilty and say, like, okay, I want that special probation. It doesn't work like that. You have to come and you have to admit, yes, I did wrong with this. The judge puts you on a special probation with a special probation officer. They work with you. They provide you services to get you out of whatever circumstances led you to make that poor decision. 
And then at the end, you have that review before the judge where he looks at what is it that you've done since you came before me and said, I'm guilty, but I gave you this gift of the special programming. And if they were successful, completely forgiven. And that taught me a lot about our own walk too, you know? There is a first step in all of this. We, we like to focus a lot on the investigative judgment, that period that we as Adventists know we're living in right now. But that, there's something that comes before that, and that's our own admission of guilt. You know, before we can even worry about the investigative judgment, we came to a point where we came to the Lord, and we said, I know that I'm a sinner, and I need you, because the wages of sin is death. Mm -hmm. But I admit that guilt on my own part, and I'm availing myself of your blood. I'm running into that chamber. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, God gives us all of the things that we need in mm -hmm. order to be successful during our probation period, mm -hmm. to be successful. And in the end, that investigative judgment, mm -hmm. if we've been faithful, if we've seen the way the Lord has been working in our lives, those changes that have been happening, we have nothing to worry about. We should be excited because we know that God is going to say, yes, I know that you took me up on the gift that I have given you. Mm -hmm. And so that same gift that's given in terms of saving us, that's also what sanctifies us. And that's why we should have no fear, you know, at the time of, of this hour of judgment. Before we go to Kiran, I, I, I resonate with what you're saying because I want to believe it because it's hopeful. But aren't we diminishing the reality of the, the urgency of the times by, you know, like, aren't, we, aren't we missing the point that Jesus is coming soon and this is, I mean, this is serious stuff. Like, I, do you find what I'm saying? Like, it's yeah. almost like uh, you're just trying to make people feel nice. I'm asking. <laughs> yeah, Question. I mean... Jesus is coming, yeah? So I used to be scared of that too. Um, I was terrified about Jesus' coming because what is my motivation? Either I'm worried that, as she mentioned, about my, my sins. So I'm motivated by fear. He's coming and mm -hmm. he's going to get me. Mm -hmm. So I have to show some part of my righteousness. Because it says we have to be ready, right? Yes. Coming, yeah. So then automatically I think in my mind, oh, I have to be perfect. I have to have my, this perfect righteousness. No, no amount of my righteousness stands in front of God. Mm -hmm. It is the free gift of Jesus that makes me able to stand in front of him. Second, sometimes we are motivated by reward. Uh, I'm going to get that medal at the end of the race or I'm going to get the crown with stars. Actually, we don't deserve that too. It is actually, again, the gift of God. That's why we take our, you know, uh, crowns and then throw in front of Jesus and then we prostrate in front of him. So what should I be motivated again? The only motivation I should have is the love of Jesus Christ. If I spend my time with Jesus every day and have this personal connection with him, have this deep friendship, it's like a long-distance relationship, I'll be longing for him to come. When he's coming, I don't care how I look. If I'm going to visit my mother, she doesn't care how I look. Whether I'm fat or skinny or my clothes are really contemporary or traditional, she doesn't care. She gives me a hug. That's exactly how Jesus is going to behave. So my part of being ready is to love. It says like in those days, the love in many people's hearts grows cold. But stay faithful till the end. What he meant by being faithful, that means he wants us to exhibit that love that no one can have in those days. Mm -hmm. Continue to love your enemies. Continue to show them what Christ is because that love, not the violence, but the love mm -hmm. is the strongest force for people to turn back to God. So you're, you're saying not being motivated by fear or, or fear of consequences or, or desire for reward, but being motivated by love. By love. That's, that's, that's what makes it not scary? Yes. Okay. Any other thoughts? One thing that 
and when we were discussing this last night, you know, Jesus relates himself to a chicken. And I just was like, wow, you know, like Jesus is that, I mean, how scary can a chicken be, right? And he's like, I wanted to be that, those wings that covered you. I wanted you to be like chicks that I could just gather you under my wings and just hold you close to myself and keep you warm and keep you safe and keep you protected. That does not sound scary. You know, that sounds very comforting. And I think the whole concept of the judgment is whose wings are we under? You know, if we're under the wings of the Most High, we don't have anything to fear. Amen. And I think going to the, back to this verse that Julian was talking about in Isaiah 26, he's, he's inviting people to come into his chamber. And he says, when you come into the chamber, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is passed. He's saying, stay inside the chamber because the chamber is where it's safe. And then it says, for behold, the Lord comes out of his place. So God is going to come out of the chamber to do his judgments. But as long as you're in the chamber with him, mm-hmm. you have nothing to fear because his protection is going to be holding over you to keep you in that secure place. Amen. 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 Okay, yeah, go ahead. And then we're going to read again. So I also want to talk about this book of Judges, right? I mean, every time Israelites make a mistake, God sends Philistines and then they cause problems and then they repent. And when they repent, God sends a judge. I mean, if, if I'm, I, I had a speeding ticket, and then I went in front of the judge, it was scary. I don't know why, but it is a scary thing, right? If a judge is coming in front of you to judge you, you expect the worst. But that's not what the book of Judges talks about. Every time a judge came, they liberated Israel from Philistines, right? They, then the peace was there for 20 years, 40 years, 50 years. So we should expect this judge who is kind and loving, who gave his life for us, coming back, we shouldn't be worried. Mm. We should be actually happy that he's going to liberate us from our sins, mm. right? Awesome. So, so, so this kind of ties with, uh, I think Amy started this, this train of, of thinking that the judge is actually there to help you out. But it starts with an admission of guilt. That means now I can help you because, you know, what, who you're, you're being honest about what your situation is, and then the judge comes actually to liberate you, and as long as you stick with the judge, you'll be okay. Yeah. Let's let's keep. Oh, you want can, to say can something? Can I just read a verse that? Okay, and then and we'll I, keep reading. And ties that. <laughs> yeah. Ties that in Micah seven. That's Micah a favorite seven. favorite verse um, in this topic of judgment. Micah seven verses eight and nine. Mm-hmm. It says, "Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me." I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleaded my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. Mm-hmm. It's just a really fitting, fitting verse, promise for us to consider when we're Amen. talking about judgment. Let's, let's, let's go back to Matthew 24. Um, and we ended on verse 35 where it says, heaven and earth shall pass away. Uh, but my words shall not pass away. Uh, verse, 20, verse 36 says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Uh, I'd like for us to address this thing of time setting, of, of knowing when Jesus is coming. Um, and we started losing to the tarrying time thing. Now, how many of, how many of you guys grew up in an Adventist home? Okay, a significant number. Um, how many of you guys had the experience? I had this experience. When I was in grade school, I thought there is no way I'm going to graduate high school before Jesus comes. Anyone had that experience? 
One? Oh man, okay, two. Okay, I went to, maybe I went to too many prophecy seminars. <laughs> they literally had one every, every quarter at my church back home. Every quarter they had a prophecy seminar and they'll put the image up there and they'll say, we are living in the tippy toes. You know, juicy, well not just the toes, the tippy toes. Like, you know, the nail, right at the edge of the nail and the nail isn't growing any longer. <laughs> and then you're like, man, juice is coming now. And, and uh, so maybe this is not a relevant question because nobody had that problem. But for me, it was I never thought I was gonna finish high school before Jesus came. And then year 2000 came, remember? Remember Y2K? And everybody was like, Ooh, Y2K, <laughs> like, computers are gonna crash. P.S., I'm from Zimbabwe, like, we had no problem with Y2K. <laughs> They're like, planes are gonna crash. We're like, we'll be okay. <laughs> okay, but we have planes, just one or two. But um, <laughs> this thing of, of Jesus is coming soon and the time setting, you know, because when we see prophecy fulfilling, we read some of the prophecies, earthquakes happening in diverse places. And now we've had literally planes dropping out of the sky, you know, and disappearing, and you can't even find anything of them. You, we, we've got uh, pestilences, the Zika virus, like all this crazy stuff. How do you not say there is no way Jesus is coming before I have kids, or there's no way Jesus is coming before, you know, like, there's no way I will have kids before Jesus comes. Or there is no way I'm gonna have to pay off my student loans before Jesus comes, right? How do you, how do you not say, <laughs> how do you, how do you not, how do you not uh, get into that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wanna remember the, uh, the story of Elijah, right? So Elijah, uh, went up to the king and then said, you're not going to have rain for three and a half years. And then he went back to the wilderness and he was waiting at the brook. Brook dried up. And then Jesus said, go to Zezreel. Now, king, king's wife is uh, from Zezreel. She's the Baal God worship, Baal God worship, uh, worshiper. Mm -hmm. And their capital is Zezreel. This is crazy. You're asking me to go to Zezreel? Like, they're going to kill me. Mm -hmm. But he's like, go there. There is this widow. She's going to take care of you. Think about the boldness of God. Hmm. He's the king of the universe, right? Is there anything too hard for him to protect hmm. you? Hmm. Nothing. He sends him to the Zezreel in, in the middle of all these Baal worshippers and then priests and everything. And he protects him in the house of that widow who doesn't have money, nothing, hmm. no protection for those many days. Hmm. You see, that's the, that's the promise that I always count on. So no matter what happens, even Zika virus or whatever the virus, or we all turn into zombies, I don't care. But as long as I'm in connection with God, he's going to take care of me. Because I don't trust in my ability to protect myself, but God's ability and his willingness mm -hmm. to protect me. Mm -hmm. The God who started this thing in me will okay. make sure he will see through the end. Amen. So if I take my eyes off of that promise and then look at all the others, just like Peter took off eyes from Jesus when he's walking on the water, I would fall. Mm. So, you know, time and time again, something big happens. A new pope got elected. Everybody goes on crazy on Facebook. Like, this is the pope. He's the Jesuit. He's like, a Jesuit, yeah. <laughs> I, I've been saying it for the third time now. <laughs> so where is my focus? Is it on the pope or Jesus? Mm. 
So it's actually a reproof for us. Like, where do we put our like eyes? Mm-hmm. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Nothing matters. Mm-hmm. Okay, Amy. I think that um, your the question bottom. is how can we not time set when we have all these lists of things? But I think the Bible is very clear about why Jesus mm-hmm. is giving us these things. I mean, like we said, chapter twenty-four, verse thirty-six. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. We fast forward past the crucifixion, past the resurrection. We go to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples again, Jesus is about to go up to heaven. And they say, um, at the end of, cha- uh, the end of verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Mm. And that's interesting because when we go back to Matthew chapter 24, the only clear definitive sign, like the specific, specific sign that Jesus will, that the end will come is in Matthew 24 verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus, the reason he's giving us all of these other things, that there's going to be pestilences and that there's going to be wars, that there's going to be earthquakes, it's not so much to tell us when he is coming, it's to tell us that he is coming. Mm -hmm. It's to remind us that this world is not our home, that this is not a final resting place for us, that we have something that we're looking forward to. But while we're looking forward to it, we're not supposed to be divining like oh you know there's no way we're gonna last two more years on this earth which we hear people say all the time and then four years later here we are you know and that's not to diminish the urgency and the reality of the soon coming of Jesus but our focus isn't supposed to be trying to figure out how much time is left our focus is to be finishing that task that Jesus has given us to do okay all right on I think there's a a double ditch for this. The one ditch is, I believe Jesus is coming like tomorrow, so therefore I don't know how to prep for the future. I don't know what to do because Jesus is coming now. That's that's one side. The other side is we've had wars and pestilences for forever, and Mm -hmm. so therefore, you know, I believe Jesus is coming, but they just always happen, so you become that skeptic who's not really sure whether he's coming or not. And I think one thing that we have to to always keep in mind, and throughout this chapter 24, Jesus is stating this over and over, of preparedness, because heaven comes the time you take your last breath, and we don't know when that's going to be. We don't have to look forward to the event. Some of us will be privileged to be alive when Jesus comes, but many of us will not. And so the decision that we have to make to be ready for Jesus comes, comes every single day, because the end of the time could come for me tomorrow Mm -hmm. if I pass away. I don't know that. And you see Jesus when he's talking to the disciples, you know, like how we even started this whole conversation this morning is that, you know, the disciples and the Pharisees were so focused on the externals. And Jesus is like, this is not about the externals. This is about your heart. And when he's going through this whole chapter of 24, he's weaving in very um, vivid descriptions of the end. But the focus is not on all of these descriptions to the end. It's so that we can know, like Amy said, that the end is 
is coming. We have to be prepared. And so Jesus wants to weave it. And we haven't even gotten to the last two parables of the chapter yet because that's really where the punchline is of Jesus saying, we have to be ready because we don't know when he's coming. All right, we, we need to get to the punchline right after Amy. Okay, okay, really quick. I just, what Autumn is, tell, is, is telling us, it's just, it, speaking about this and thinking about the urgency, it really makes me think of a church member of ours. My husband pastors two churches, and mm-hmm. in our smaller church, um, the oldest member of our church passed away a little over a week ago. Mm-hmm. And um, he was 96 years old, and uh, probably a week before his death, another one of the elders went to go visit him, and he was relating back to the church what that visit was. And, and the old man said his name was Don. He said, you know, I really thought that I would see Jesus coming. You know, I thought that I wasn't going to die before Jesus was here, but I'm going to see him soon anyway. Amen. You know? So he died with that assurance knowing that his second coming was coming soon. He thought it wasn't going to be in the form of him closing his eyes, but he knows that he is ready to see Jesus when he's there. Mm. So that's the issue of preparedness. Are we prepared to see Jesus if he comes in the clouds this afternoon, or are we prepared if we have to close our eyes in death this afternoon? Either mm. way, it's Jesus' the second coming for us. Mm. Okay. Let's, let's, let's go to that punchline. Let's go back to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. Um, I think I, I had us read verse, I read verse 36. Let's read to the end of the chapter, uh, two verses each. From verse 37, uh, let's start with you, Kiran, and go around this way. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Verse 41. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. And begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and, and at an hour that he is not aware of. And shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion. With the hypocrites, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right. Um, We started in verse 37. As the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Do you you guys think that that there's similarity between the days of Noah and our world right now? Um, I'm thinking, share with us, I didn't ask this question yesterday, so if there's silence, that's why. But... Uh, pop quiz. As the days of Noah and today, like what we see in the news headlines, similarities, yes, no. I think no. the first thing is how many years did Noah preach? 120. Okay, so for 120 years, he's saying the end is coming, the end is coming, there's going to be a flood. You can imagine probably within maybe the first two years, people are like, whoa, we got to be ready if this is happening. Mm-hmm. But what about in year 57 or year 100? They're like, 
dude, this crazy man's been preaching this for all these years, right? This is not happening. Mm-hmm. And, and then after 120 years, they finally see the fulfillment of what he's preached about for so long. Mm-hmm. But it was coming. And I think that we come to a point where, you know, we've been preaching Jesus coming for so long that people do get that skeptical attitude. Oh, those crazy Adventists, they're always talking about the Advent. Jesus is coming soon, but, you know, he's not. We don't see the sign of his coming yet. And I think that same skeptical attitude, we need to be careful of in the church. Do we really believe Jesus is coming? Hmm. Are we living every moment right now from day to day in light of like we were saying earlier, when is the coming going to come? It comes for me and for you at different times, um, depending on how long we live. Are we skeptical like those people in the days of Noah, or are we believing and living our lives as if Jesus' coming is imminent? Okay. You know, if on that note, I agree with you too that if we're skeptical, if we are skeptical, but even for, even worse, are we? If we're scoffers, if we become hmm. complacent. Believe it or not, we're actually a fulfillment, of prof- a fulfillment of Scripture that if we are scoffers, that we're fulfillment of the words of Peter, behold, in the last day scoffers shall come saying, where is the promise of thy coming? Um, and so one of the things we're admonished um, by John and, and by many of the apostles is to endure to the end. Mm-hmm. Jesus says, those that endure to the end, the same that sh- shall be saved. And so I think oftentimes, yes, we see um, not only the world, but the church um, becoming impatient. Um, with what we see happening in the world um, and, and forgetting um, in that time um, mm-hmm. and not being patient and looking at the signs and, and, and checking ourselves, checking myself and saying, am I, am I becoming complacent? Am I just looking at these things and saying, yeah, this is happening, but you know, I still got a plan to get my degree. I still got a plan to make that money. I still got to plan to get married you know, mm-hmm. and all these things and just kind of putting it off mm-hmm. and um, becoming skeptical and even worse, scoffing. You know, I, I, um, and, then, and then Kiran, you can just, just to put it out there, we're, we're talking about being, being skeptical or scoffing. Um, I, I, I would like if someone could address getting discouraged, okay? Because, I mean, there's, there's being skeptical, like, yeah, you always say that, and then there's a scoffing, like, oh, these crazy people. But how about the people who took Matthew 24, 14 seriously, and they went canvassing from door to door in the hot Michigan sun, right? And, and they're running from one door to the other because Jesus is coming soon, right? And then for Amy, it was almost 10 years ago that she did that. It's been a decade. I'm not aging her. I am, but, you know. It's been a, almost a decade since you had that experience, right? Because Jesus is coming soon, and so we're, the gospel must go to every single person. How, 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 um, how do you avoid discouragement? Uh, skepticism, scoffing, yes, uh, but I want to talk to those who are trying to be faithful as well, and it can potentially get discouraging, right? Sorry, Kiran, you can, and then I, I just threw that out there. I, I'm not going to talk about discouragement, but, you know, the people uh, in the times of Noah, when we think about them, we always think about evil people, these monsters, the immoral people, but if you, I mean, you know, Ellen White talks about them too. They were scientific. At that time, there was no rain. It used to be the dew that used to make the earth wet. So when he was talking about this rain, I was like, this is interesting. So they consulted all the scientific people, and then they came up with the conclusion, we haven't seen this in the natural law. Nowhere in the nature we can observe this phenomena, Mm -hmm. so this cannot be true. Mm -hmm. So they didn't believe. 
Today also, you see the scientific and technology advancement is so mm. much, mm. it actually takes your faith away from God. Mm. Because we don't, we have Hubble telescope and all the other telescopes and we see through the galaxies and oh, we don't see God anywhere. Or we can say we don't see how a human could have been created. It could have come from an evolutionary journey. So where is the point of God? So we could argue because we do not see it in the natural law, so we reject God, just like the people of the Noah. So that's something that I wanted to highlight. Awesome. I just want to address that with just a very short statement here. Um, a. Thompson is a, um, a Bible scholar. He writes commentaries, and he says, he, he addresses the issue of discouragement with Jesus' delayed coming. He says, every temptation that you successfully resist, every obligation that you faithfully fulfill, Every trial to which you patiently submit, every step that you advance in the career of godliness and virtue, every victory that you achieve over the devil, the world, and the flesh, by that faith and patience which characterizes the saints of God upon earth, will put a loftier note in your song of praise and add another gem to your crown of righteousness and glory in heaven. Seeing then that your continual stay here on earth is conducive to your everlasting benefit, let not your souls be cast down. And I think if we can constantly remember that everything that we go through in life is going to make heaven that much more, that much sweeter and that much more um, just the reward that we waited for, then it'll make the journey and the delay that we go through here a little better and a little easier because we know God is going to make heaven that much more special for us. Mm -hmm. And I think also, um, I don't have the quote on me, but it's in the chapter of the life work in the book Education. Um, as she is describing the purpose of the life work for service, for taking the gospel to the end of the earth, she talks about how many times we focus on why we want Jesus to come again. We're tired of pestilences and earthquakes and wars and sickness and losing loved ones and things like that. But she says how selfish that is for us to be thinking that way. Because how much more does God want the second coming to happen? How much more is he longing to be reunited with us? How much more has sin hurt him? Jesus had to give up everything in order to come and redeem us from our sins. He took on the burden of all sin, believers and unbelievers alike, in order to give us that opportunity. And so I think, yes, we can get discouraged, but think about when, when we're tempted to do that, we're focusing on ourselves, and that's never what we're supposed to be doing. We should be focusing on the other people we're reaching on and focusing on God and thinking mm -hmm. about what does that mean to him. And, you know, earlier Autumn said that, that Jesus compares himself to a chicken, and we look at that, you know, so even in here, looking at the end of time, um, chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who, sent her, who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hand gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That's what Jesus wants. He wants to be able to gather us together. He wants to be able to come back. It's not, it's something that should be encouraging us to think that, he too is longing for that and to come, that he also mm -hmm. cannot wait for the mm -hmm. second coming to happen. Awesome. You know, that reminds me of, I heard a sermon by Mark Finley mm -hmm. once, and he said, you know, every, at the end of the day, we come to God and say, oh God, you know, my day was like this, and thank you for helping me through it. And he said, how many times do we go to God and say, God, how was your day? Right? Um, and he's like, how many times do we ask God, how, how did you make it through the day? And sometimes it's like, you know, I had to see an innocent baby like lose its life in an unjust circumstance, you know, and, and I, I, I watched, I, had, I stood by as, as all this 
horrible stuff happened, and God is experiencing this, like all the grief of the world every single day, all the time. He said, how often do we pause and think, God, how was your day? And what would that change if we were not just focusing on, I want my sorrow to end, but what about God's sorrow? What about how God feels? And it reminds me of what you're saying about love, like love being the motivation. I'd like to focus on those last, we're coming to the close because of time. Those last verses, um, <clears throat> verse 50, the Lord of that servant is talking about the servant who, the, the, tarry, the tarrying time, and he you know, beats up his fellow servants and goes crazy. Verse 50, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour when he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a very dismal ending. Um, how do we not end the Sabbath school study on a dismal note? <laughs> I was just actually thinking about that, and I think the few verses right before that help end on a very positive note. Because he said, this is in verse 45 of 24. Who then is faithful and a wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Hmm. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. And I've asked myself the question, We've talked about delay. How can we hasten Jesus' return? And, and I think it goes back to what Amy said. The only thing that's really certain in here of when Jesus will come is Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. Then the end will come. Mm. And I think it's up to us to be that final people who says, I want to hasten Jesus' coming by sharing his love to the world. Because we know when that gospel has gone to the whole world, there's the assurance that Jesus will come. So we have to be so doing while we're waiting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, any last thoughts and I'll um, wrap up. <laughs> Go ahead, Kira. Well, I mean, we have a couple of minutes. So, um, you know, I think about this, I was like, you know, in the weeping and gnashing of teeth, but I also realize that whether we are good or evil, we all are children of God. So it doesn't make him happy to see one of his children go away. So this time is actually an opportunity for us to make Jesus one person happy, one more child happy. How do I do that? By living the life that had given to me abundantly. Live the life with full of joy, happiness, Bring joy and goodness into this world. Show everybody the reason for your joy and then win them to Christ. By doing that, one child at a time, one chicken, like, you know, like the little chick at a time, we are saving, we're bringing them under the wings of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, should, that should be there, like, you know, whenever the time changes, when I have an extra hour, I want to sleep. <laughs> catch up on the sleep. We should catch up on the children of God, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And last thought, Julian? Okay. Um, there was a statement on that note that you were saying. Um, that was, I just read this morning as I was thinking back over this. Um, just trying to see if I can remember where, which one it was. I think it was this last one. Our High Calling, Our High Calling 114, paragraph 3, it says... The light reflected from the cross of Calvary will humble every proud thought. Those who seek God 
with all the heart and accept the great salvation offered them will open the door of the heart to Jesus. They will cease to ascribe glory to themselves. They will not pride themselves on their acquirements or take credit to themselves for their capabilities, but will regard all their talents as God's gifts to be used to his glory. Every intellect, every intellectual ability they will regard as precious only as it can be used in the service of Christ. You know, I think um, we're all, we all have been given talents. We all have been given um, different skills and different trades, different um, gifts. And he needs us all to put it, you know, be all in for him. And, um, you know, you think of, I think of James uh, chapter five, it says that the husbandman or the farmer, he's looking and he's waiting for the, the precious fruit of the earth um, to come to maturity. And those are, those are the talents. What are we doing with our time? Uh, because instead of being so wound up and anxious about the time and so worried about what side am I going to be on? Am I going to be, um, you know, this is something to consider, but consider, consider what am I doing with my time each and every day? Um, have, I, have I properly, have I taken opportunities to share? Am I, am I active in sharing Christ with others? Am I doing evangelism? Do I have that person that I've been having an ongoing conversation with, um, maybe using my profession in law or, or as a teacher or whatever it might be? Um, to, to make inroads for that individual salvation. And so I just, I just think that it's really important that we um, consider some of those thoughts there awesome. too. I, I like that, that you're you know, bringing it home. We, we have a wide array of professions you know, represented here. We've got everything from law to, to education to uh, health and scientific research. We even have a farmer up here, which is awesome. How many panels have you seen with the farmer? Like, this is really cool. <laughs> um, but whatever our profession is, whatever line of work we're in, God needs all of us. Amen? God doesn't just need the people who are paid from the tithe, or, you know, who work 24-7, you know, you know, knocking on doors. God needs scientists who will go into their places of work and say, you know what, it's like the days of Noah, but I'm one scientist who says there is a God, amen? Like God needs, God needs uh, health professionals, he needs, he needs farmers, he needs prosecuting attorneys who will show the love of Jesus as they send bad people to jail and pray that they get converted in there, <laughs> amen? Okay. He needs all of us, right, amen? And, I, and just, just, to, just to tie up what, what we started with, we started with the, the focus of the disciples was off, right? They, they, their focus was off just like the focus of the Pharisees was off. They were focused on externals. And then disciples come and they get focused on externals, the temple, not realizing that the glory of the temple was right in their midst, Jesus, right? And then we come down to our time, and majority of our conversation has been about our focus. Jesus is coming soon, but where is the focus? Is it on Jesus is coming soon, or is it on Jesus is coming soon? Right? Where is our focus? What, what, what consumes our time? And if we're focused on Jesus, if we're hiding in him, if we're, if we're focused on the one who is judging in our favor, then we have nothing to fear for today. Moreover, it gives us the responsibility to go tell somebody that you don't have to be afraid either. Because even when people don't know Jesus is coming back, people are afraid, right? 
the world is like a very fearful place. Even, if, even without the coming of Jesus, the world is a fearful place. And we can tell them you can hide in Jesus and you can find security and safety in him. Amen? Amen. I, I have to make an appeal. Right? How many of you here want to say, I want my focus to be Christ? So much so that I'm so engrossed in Jesus that I want to share him with others. I want, that, I want that to be my life. If that's you, put your hand up and we're going to have a word of prayer. Let's pray. Loving Father, you've seen the hands that went up, not for show because we're not about externals. It's not about who saw us put our hand up. But in our heart of hearts, we want to say that our lives should be focused on you. We want Christ to be all in all to us. When we see the signs fulfilling around us, help us to lift up our heads to focus on you, realizing that our redemption draws nigh. Help us to prepare others for your soon return as well, so that when you come in the clouds of glory, one more chick, as Kiran put it, one more chick will be under your wings. We pray these things in your loving name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.